Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so happy to tell you the story of how agent Cecilia Lira and author Kari Nixon met, became friends, and then officially started working together. Kari is a science writer with the style of an English major. Her book, Quarantine Life from Cholera to COVID-19, What Pandemics Teach Us About Parenting, Work, Life, and Communities from the 1700s to Today, tells the stories behind the story of public health, vaccines, and the history of scientific innovation. We discuss taking agents' editorial notes and running with them, the etiquette of interacting with agents on Twitter, and balancing academic interests with storytelling to help make them accessible to more readers. Plus, we learn Cecilia's strategy for selling a book that needed to reach the shelves as soon as possible. We love their author-agent relationship and are sure you will too. And we're so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So can you tell us the story of how you met? Oh gosh, Uh, this is hilarious. Okay. We connected via Twitter. Kari, I think, Kari, I mean, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. So you correct me if this is incorrect, but she added me on Twitter. I think I followed her back and I started noticing that we had a lot in common, just like stuff she would retweet, the takes she would have on things just were really amusing and really funny and really intelligent. And I do this thing on Twitter where I ask people questions, right? Like I ask questions to the writing community and I'm always on the lookout for interesting answers. And Kari's answers were always very interesting. And (laughs) pretty soon we just started DMing. I knew she was working at the time on a nonfiction project. I will leave it up to her whether she says what it was or not. But, and after a little bit of back and forth, and I should say a lot of back and forth, (laughs) was, was just just this spontaneous organic thing, right? Like I would comment on her tweet. She would comment on mine. She would retweet something that I put out there and vice versa. It was just very organic and spontaneous. But after a while, I offered to take a look at her pages. Again, this was like years ago. So again, I could be remembering this wrong, but I remember giving her notes and I asked her like how honest you want me to be? And she said, just give it to me straight. Like she said, I can take critique. I promise you there's nothing you can say that will make me like take this badly. And I I think my usual line is I have no shame or dignity left. PhD program took that away from me. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that was actually exactly what you said. Now it's coming back to me. And I And I remember thinking to myself, because this is what I always think, yeah, they say this now, but so as an agent, your job is to poke holes in things, especially nonfiction, because it's a proposal. There's a lot of comments I write on the margin. I don't mean for them to sound harsh at all, but they probably do. The intention is to make the work better, but it's very much like you haven't specified this needs to be fleshed out, or the premise here doesn't make any sense. I don't see how you reach this conclusion or things like that. And I try to word it carefully, but at the same time, I have to be direct. And I will just say that I poked so many holes in that thing. And her reaction was just six stars out of five. Like she (laughs) understood everything I said. She 
just built on the comments. It was just like, I, and honestly, anyone who can take criticism with that level of professionalism and intelligence, because it's not just that her emotional reaction was what I thought it should be in my, my personal opinion, but rather also that she was able to like really see the issues with the work, but also still understand the quality in her work. So that's one thing that really stood out to me and just made our, our Twitter bond stronger. And the second thing was I loved her writing. Yes, there were holes to poke in the approach and other nonfiction related things, but the quality of the writing was just superb. And for me, it's all about the writing. If your writing on a line level is wonderful, I will read anything you write. I will read your grocery list. I will read your best friend. Like I don't, and I remember thinking like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here, but you can write. You're a storyteller. You never told me that actually directly. Of course not, because well, the, intention I'm cry. <laughs> the intention was to get you to work on the proposal. And if I just complimented you left Aww. and right, I try to hold back. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. You're my agent now. So of course you like my writing, but I didn't know you liked it back then when I was a baby. That is just just silly, but okay. (laughs) I do think that I purposely didn't gush as much as I normally would have. But anyway, if you look back at the comments, there were positive comments, I hope. Um, And you know what? I want to go back to that style now. (laughs) Uh, Well, I want to point out here too, that from my perspective as well, I do take criticism really well. I um, didn't get a job recently and I was pretty mad about it. And even Cece said, you like rejection, Kari. And it's true. And I've been using that to explain some of my personality quirks to people recently because it actually, I really love the hustle and rejection is part of the hustle. I get like really excited. So I do take criticism really well, but I guess what I would say too is that from my perspective at the time, she was giving me absolutely free advice. And if on Twitter, so I just decided one day, and this is, I'm known for this in my workplace, that I just decide I'm going to do this next thing. And I decided one day I was going to write a memoir. And I just dove into Twitter trying to figure out how agents worked because we don't have that academically. And what I quickly learned and now know is that agents will like have contests to give away a free manuscript critique or you can pay for them. So from my perspective too, I somehow won the jackpot and got somebody to help me understand what to do. So I just want to say that too, because with everything Cece's saying about trying to be polite and all these things, I also think it's important for any aspiring authors out there to know that I don't really, like, you can't just ask an agent to do this. We had connected over a long time. And Cece was initially one of the two top agents that I wanted to send my book to because she had an avowed feminist agenda. So I had already marked her as like the person for me. So after I gave her that feedback, she actually got back to me and said, I realized I'm not ready to write this book yet. And this was after we talked about the the comments and after I realized how good she was at taking criticism and how great her writing was. But after a while of sitting with the comments and just figuring stuff out, because like she said, it was a memoir, she realized she wasn't ready to tell that story yet, which is totally fine and a very valid response. After a while, and I don't know how much time passed, I want to say almost a year. Yeah. And we continued to like bond on Twitter every once in a while. We would exchange DMs here and there. I would again, retweet her stuff. She would retweet mine. It was very sporadic. But after a year of the pandemic hit and I would 
follow her academic accomplishments. Kari is an academic and she writes textbooks. And I remember seeing, this was actually on Facebook. This was not on Twitter. I remember seeing her opening up a box of her newest textbooks. And it had something to do with, and I don't remember, I should, but it had something to do with disease because that's her thing. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, she could write a COVID book. So I wrote a comment on the post. I wonder if we could actually find this, but saying something like, hey, if you're ready to write that trade book, let's talk. Because again, I loved her writing. It's all about the writing. And then we started Facebook messaging each other. And then we we switched to email. I remember it all so vividly because... I'd been wanting to break into the, because then you had said, if you can get a nonfiction book that does well, then you'll maybe be able to approach the memoir because memoir as well, you have to have a platform. I think you have to have a platform for all nonfiction, but for writing about disease, I happen to have a platform in my credentials. But the idea would be that if I could have a successful nonfiction book, then we could possibly move on to the memoir. All this time too, the memoir has become as I digested Cece's comments over the year and thought about this, it's become this really different book, but still a project I'm excited about. But yeah, I remember really vividly talking with you and almost backing out so many times because do you remember my random, I don't know if you can really separate some of my random bursts of anxiety that come at you from just the whole of them, <laughs> but I don't know if I you do remember. remember. <laughs> I, I would remember. I would just be sitting up at night and I'd be like, Cece, what about this? What if yeah. my academic press doesn't like it that I wrote another book like this? And what if this happens? And what, and I just, and there were so many things that I was scared of signing on to say things that were out of my lane. And she really had to like therapy me through it, which again, at this point, she wasn't even my <laughs> agent. I actually made her write a full proposal and kept giving her comments on it through multiple rounds before I agreed to sign her Yes, because I didn't know whether Mm. she was going to deliver or not. I've seen Mm -hmm. this happen before. And so it was, this was, this is not a typical situation. Usually you query an agent and then you, so we, Kari, do you remember? I don't think we had a call. Okay. I just, I guess I worry because I see so many agents really being approached in inappropriate ways by potential clients. And I think that the non-traditional nature of how we began working together, I just worry that it would make people be like, cool, I can pop up in an agent's DMs and that's going to work out for me. But it's it wasn't all of a sudden. You had right. reason to believe that the two of you had a rapport. Mm-hmm. It sounded like you were genuinely interested in similar things. Cece, would you talk a little bit about what made what Kari did appropriate versus the usual pitching on Twitter? Sure. Yeah, that um, feels well, important for me. I'm very apparently anxious about this for CC. <laughs> I appreciate you thinking of it. Yeah, no, and it, it does make sense. It's a valid concern. I guess the whole point is that she didn't pitch me on Twitter. We connected over stuff that we have in common, like feminist stuff and books that we liked. And we just, it was, there were sporadic tweets here and there and retweets and things like that, which evolved to DMs. Oh, I really liked this. Oh, I really liked this TV show. And eventually after chatting with her for, I'm going to say six months to a year, I saw a tweet of hers about something with anxiety on her writing or something. And I said, Hey, send me your pages. I'm going to take a look. Mm -hmm. So I offered, right? That's true. I've done this. She did not ask. She did not ask. She did not pitch me on uh, via DMs. That is truly not appropriate only because it would not be fair. We have to keep 
a system for everyone. But when you have a friend, you are allowed to ask your friend or, or to offer things to your friend. And that's what she became, right? Like on Twitter, I'll just say it. Kari became my friend. It That's true. It happened topsy-turvy, but it, it did. And it's true. And I also think that I will say that I have been aging Tang now for years. And this has only happened where I've connected with a writer and like exchanged DMs with them and, and stuff like that. It's like four times. And Kari is one of these times. Woohoo! Um, I so- win. So it's not <laughs> like, it's not something that happens often, but it does. And I have had calls. I had a, a one hour phone call with someone who I did not sign. and did not offer a rep about a month ago. She wrote a book. I read the first chapters. I loved it, but it's not ready. But I had a one hour phone call with her to explain what I think she, it was like a revise and resubmit, but it was a phone call versus an email. It happens. It's rare it, for anyone listening. I don't recommend approaching <laughs> agents on Twitter and pitching them. But if you do form a connection with an agent and an agent offers, hey, why not? That it was you offered. And then when COVID happened, which obviously nobody could have predicted, we as already existing friends thought if we could. If I could do this, it could be mutually beneficial for both of us. That's exactly what happened. So would you say that if a writer is interacting with an agent on Twitter, they should just act friendly, talk about things you have in common, and let the agent bring up their work? Yeah, I think so. As a general rule, if it's stuff like retweets and stuff that's public, then definitely if it's DMs after a long time, then you could maybe even ask, would I be able to query you? Would that be all right? But you also don't have to. I get queries from people that I interact on Twitter all the time, and I remember every single one of them. So I think it's about feeling it out and showing like common sense. And when in doubt, don't bring it up in a DM, let the agent do it. Because if the agent's <laughs> yeah. interested, they will. I did, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was interested and yes. I did. So. It has taken me almost the entirety of my time on this planet to learn that when in doubt, don't say the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we didn't really have a call, but we worked on the proposal. And as Cece said, she was trying to see if I could deliver. I think I have demonstrated that I deliver. I remember her writing me back at some point and being like, you're doing this too fast. Because (laughs) I, I didn't actually send a draft at that point. I just had a question. And so she hadn't actually seen what I was going to deliver for the proposal, but she said, slow down, speed racer. It's not meant to be done this fast. (laughs) I remember exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, like you don't know me yet. (laughs) Cool. And then we did have to work on the proposal a bit, but it really, it was a pretty solid first draft. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. She delivered the thing in record time. It was scary. So when we did start working on it and I said, okay, if you can deliver this, I will offer you rep. It's up to you whether you want to sign with me or not. You're free to sign with whomever you want. There are no expectations. So Mm -hmm. she started working on it and she got back to me and I don't know, but it was something ridiculous. Something like two days, days, three days. I don't, I I cannot, again, she knows this. She's been studying disease for years. So she had all the research in her head. And when I got the file, I was like, this thing is going to be a disaster. I opened it up and I was like, it's going to be so bad. She probably just vomited on the page. It was great. It was great. It was brilliant. It was well-written, full of stories. And I just kept highlighting all the stuff I loved. And yeah, I had notes, but yeah. Speed Racer delivered. <laughs> It was fun too once we sold the book, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a bit, and met my new editor. And then Cece was able to be like, it was fun because I would just be sitting there, but Cece would be like, not really on the DL, but it, like it wasn't directed at me. And she would tell the people in the industry, like, just watch. She's so fast. It's crazy. <laughs> 
Cece, are you willing to talk a little about your strategy sending out the book? Yeah. So when I felt that the proposal was ready, Kari did decide to sign with me. It was totally her decision and I was so happy. <laughs> and then we had the celebratory moment where we, you know, popped open champagne, each of us in our own place and just exchanged the picture of us drinking champagne. Hmm. When it was ready to be sent out, because it was a COVID book, there was a big factor to consider, which was that we had to do it fast. COVID books were already a thing. I'm trying to remember when this happened. Kari, do you remember the month that we went out with Yes. It was early, late June, 2020. So this was late June, 2020. The pandemic was, had already settled. I think people were like realizing that this thing wasn't going to go away anytime soon, but we all know how slow publishing is. And so Mm -hmm. for a book to come out, I don't know, it felt like maybe the market was already flooded or, but I knew how special it was. I knew that this book needed to exist. And so I chatted with Kari at the time I was at a different agency. And I remember that the advice I got, which was good advice was just do it fast. Mm -hmm. Be thankful that you have a client who has such a fast turnaround (laughs) because we don't have time to wait for this. And I agree with this advice. It was good advice. So we sent it out. I sent it out to, I carefully curate my editor's list always. I think this is really important. And I had phone calls with a few people to say, I have something really special. You should take a look at this. And I remember getting like the emails, right? With the compliments. Because everyone that I sent this to who got back to me really enjoyed the voice and Mm -hmm. even the rejections, right? Because again, rejections do come. And I chatted with Kari before to ask her, like, how do you want to handle rejections? I have this conversation with all of my creators. I say, do you want to know? Do you want to know when it happens? Do you want me to like round them up at the end of the week? Like, how do you want to do this? And she said, I want to know exactly when they come in. Just give it to me straight. I can take it. And again, she handled it like a pro. So even when we got rejections, it was always like, I love this. And they would go on and on about how much they loved it. But then obviously it was something like we already bought COVID books or something that had nothing to do with the quality of her work. So I think the phone calls were essential. I think that the speed was essential. But at the end of the day, I did very little. I think that it was all, I, I think I wrote a good pitch copy, but it was honestly, this book just, it's so good. I know I'm biased. I'm fully aware of it, but it's just, it's how do you write a book that's called quarantine life from cholera to COVID-19 and make it funny? Only (laughs) Kari, right? It's funny. It's warm. It's uplifting, but at the same time, it's realistic and just, yeah, it's truly a privilege to work on this. Oh, Cece. This is so interesting to me. I like, so uh, maybe you guys know about my background as I'm an educator, you know, I've taught all these different things. And Kari, when I was teaching, I would see there's like science brains and there's English brains. And you seem to be a really interesting mix of the two. How do you think you honed that? And how did you get from that science brain to breaking it down to the regular person like us? Yeah, I love that question. Before I went to get my PhD for English, I had actually been in a PhD program for clinical psychology, but I didn't want to be a therapist. I was studying to be a statistician. Mm. And, and I'd wanted to do that since I was 13 because I was a normal, well-rounded child, obviously, <laughs> with a robust <laughs> social life. Um, I'm not even joking. I used to sit alone on Friday nights and write psychology research papers to myself. Mm. Like, I just loved it. And so I always, this is what I was going to do, is I was going to go learn statistics and make the world better through statistics. And for a variety of reasons, 
left that field very quickly once I was in the PhD program. I only stayed one semester. I stayed long enough to get straight A's so that I would never have to worry about whether I secretly subconsciously left because I couldn't hack it. I wanted to have that on paper that I could hack it and that I made a conscientious choice to leave that field. And that's when I went into a PhD in English. But that part of me that understands science as a lens through which to understand the world is still there. And of course, the part of me who understands the humanities as a lens through which to understand the world is obviously still there. Without getting too far into detail, I guess I can say that the main reason I left the program was because I had perhaps too much of a childish belief at the time that I could do everything good for the world if I could get the math right. (laughs) And like a good educational program. They very quickly taught us that statistics are just a human tool subject to human biases and prejudices and error. And I couldn't handle it. I cried for three days. And for me, I just felt betrayed by this thing that I had set up on a pedestal for far too many years. And so when I went into English, I was just really craving this desire to unpack what had happened to me and my faith in data through a completely different disciplinary lens. And as you can see, I think through the work that I've produced now, both of those parts are very strong in me. I still am passionate about trying to get everybody to understand that data is one tool. And if we don't understand qualitative research or qualitative humanistic interactions, then we're actually missing a huge part of that picture. And I feel qualified to do that because I do understand both sides of it. I'm pretty, I'm rusty on my statistics at this point. I have that mind that was at one time very good at quantitative research design understandings, understanding the flaws in research design down to the minute coefficient. And that's one thing I often see that people who want to be medical historians or who are, often they're very good, but they would be even more helpful if they were willing to incorporate quantitative research into their work. And I think the same thing about quantitative researchers. Like I just so passionate from my own life experiences that neither of these alone is the full picture to making the world a better place and understanding each other. It's so interesting to me that you have this math and quantitative focus because I actually think one thing the book does really well, not only is it pleasant to read, it's written like an English major wrote it, not like a science major wrote it. <laughs> and I think that adds a lovely texture to the reading experience too. But The science is easier for me to understand because of the stories that you have included. And I think teaching through story is so important for those of us who don't have that science brain. That's right. (laughs) You you bring it alive in a really good way. I didn't know about Lady Montague and all of the complications there. Could you tell us a little bit about that story and how, at least for me, the story of how vaccines were invented was completely wrong. I was late to the party. I had heard vaccine is wash, cow. Like that's the story I had heard. And I didn't know about Lady Montague at all. Thank you so much for your kind words. I'll just say first, you got me thinking about the way narrative helps us understand science. For the last couple of years, I've been working with a team of scientists and engineers that are working to try to help raise public awareness about the growing crisis of antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. 
And they always are so kind and say that I'm the person that knows how to talk to people and they're just scientists, which is very kind, but I think they are pretty good at talking to people. But through them, because science is, there's more funding, I've been able to attend these conferences with that group and learn about the science of science communication and Mm -hmm. not to belabor the point too much, but the science of science communication says exactly what you said, that it's all about narrative. It's all about storytelling. And so I think you'll see throughout the book that there's these places where I lean harder on data because it proves what I feel like I've been screaming into the void for a decade, which is that everything's narrative. Data is just another way of presenting and formatting a narrative that even in scientific publications, we then add narrative to explain. Yeah, but Lady Montague, so you're right that Jenner and Vaca Cow is where the vaccine came about, but there's a, a difference that I cover a bit in the chapter that initially what Lady Montague brought back to England were one of a series of different versions that have existed throughout the globe of inoculation. And so vaccination occurred once Jenner adapted the process. As my grad school mentor, Rajani Sudan, would say, and I quote her in the book, the way she puts it is it's almost as though that technology had to be rebranded as English. Mm. Um, And I think that's really, for me, is just so formative in the way that I understand the whole process. Because Montague brought back a Greek technology or process that she saw in Turkey, but similar version or different versions of a similar process existed in, for sure, India, East Asia, and also Africa. So basically everywhere but the West that now considers (laughs) itself the king of Western medicine is what we call it. And I think what in my training under Rajani, what I learned through her is that at least in this case study, and it makes you wonder how much, in what other instances this is also the case, that we really just went over there and snatched it colonial style and then renamed it so it wasn't threatening to xenophobic Western European people. And then we used it to say, okay, we're so cool because we developed vaccination when really we took it from other people. And then I don't get into this too much in the book, but then it comes full circle because by the time period that I'm most an expert in the 1880s, so 150 years after Montague, by that point, most scholars agree that the vaccination needle is wielded against colonized people as a tool of empire and control. So it's just this, it's just awful. The West has done a lot of damage, and this is just one example of them both extracting that technology, using it to support their own prowess or perceived prowess, and then weaponizing it against the very communities from whom they took it in the first place. And I have to dive into our the next question. And we've never had a question like this before, so I wanted to snatch it. <laughs> I'm choking on myself just thinking about it. And I'm a huge fan of Shaun of the Dead, by the way. <laughs> Can we talk about zombies and modern medicine? Yes, please twist my arm. <laughs> yeah, so Shaun of the Dead, I actually teach that anytime I teach zombies. Um, so fun. Yeah, it's a really cool, it's one of the only, I think there's maybe another one now, I can't remember. 
actually right before COVID really broke in America, January, 2020, I taught an entire January term course on zombies. And some of my students said it helped prepare them for understanding the biases and prejudices that were going to come up in a pandemic. Mm. But Shaun of the Dead I use because it's one of the few films that envisions or tries to imagine a solution. For a long time, I thought their solution was nice. They tried to integrate the zombies into their society. Lately now, I think of it as, wow, like we really can only envision capitalistic means of enslaving them in menial (laughs) jobs, which ironically is actually the very first zombie film, White Zombie. That's exactly how they portray it, is a way to get more and more, like an endless supply of slave labor. So it's now I have less of a hopeful view about Shaun of the Dead maybe being a pathway out of our problematic views of the zombie. But the way that I've written about it in scholarship is about that problematic view. Because for me, what I see in zombies, monsters are great. Monsters are amazing. Just like disease before we really understood it scientifically became this vessel for whatever we already felt in society and what meanings we were going to make of it because we couldn't see it under the microscope and understand it yet. Monsters are always going to be that. They are only always a fantasy of what we fear. And so they're this almost, I always teach my student, there's no clear pipeline to the truth with a capital T. Like that doesn't exist anywhere, not through science, not through math. Monsters might be the closest that I feel we can get to understanding just a direct one-to-one relationship of what our society is freaked out about at the time because they aren't real. And so they are pure fantasy made up from human minds about what's threatening them. So when I looked at the zombies, and we were in a zombie craze for quite some time, I think we're moving past it. But what I saw is almost this, it seemed to allow for more than other monsters, which are singular, like werewolves, vampires, Jekyll and Hyde. The zombie allowed this sort of free reign to say, cool, we can just mow all these people down. Like it almost just seemed to be this means of achieving an endless violent fantasy. And maybe that's quite obvious to people. But for me, then I'm like, why? (laughs) What is that representing? And so for what I talked about in the article I published on it is that it simply represents, I think you could say a very human desire to say like in-group versus out-group thinking, us versus them. That is just seems to pervade humanity. But what I saw in the comic books that I was covering, particularly The Walking Dead, is that there would be almost like endless decent health resources for the humans if they could find an encampment. They would have like clean bandages and sanitation wasn't an issue. But the zombies who are human bodies with some sort of pathogen, we just kill them. And I always ask my students, could you envision any human illness where we would actually say that it was okay to just shoot these people with impunity. Would we do that to a patient with Alzheimer's who couldn't speak like a zombie can't speak? Would we do it to somebody with tardive dyskinesia, which is a shuffling, shambling gait like the zombies have? No. We do it to somebody with rabies who's literally coming to bite us? No. (laughs) We don't have any situations in reality whereby we just say, okay, just shoot them. And meantime, in this media, we're seeing the non-infected humans get pretty decent health care considering it's the apocalypse. And so for me, I went back to apply it to a specific way in which the American model of medicine, privatized medicine, 
and I'm drawing on Atolga Wandi's writings here, that it's simply unsustainable financially. It's an irresponsibly allocated model of healthcare. And because it's unsustainable financially, we essentially have to believe that there's a certain population in our midst that is unworthy of life so that we can justify the fact that we have a system incapable of serving all of us. And so that's what I saw in the American context with zombies. Wow. I probably just made it a lot less fun. Sorry. That's kind of my thing. (laughs) No, that's okay. I guess I never thought about healthcare and fair treatment of zombies together before. So thank you. I think that's what good work does. I think that's what makes you so interesting is oh, thank you. when you take us on a journey, because I was, I'm the one that brought Shaun of the Dead. And then you start talking and I was like, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And how a single passage in a book can change your entire perception of something. And then how you've just taken that and taken it into something even larger from our healthcare system. I'm so excited for this book to see what happens. Oh, that's so sweet of you. So interesting. Yeah. We were told to ask you about 50 Cent. Oh, I've been waiting for this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to me, Curtis. We're on a first name basis in my heart. Curtis Jackson, (laughs) listen, listen. Please respond to my tweets. I really thought (laughs) that we had a deep spiritual connection when we met that one time. So if you could just get back to me, that'd be cool. That's I've been preparing that speech. Thank you. Please keep it in. Maybe I'm sure I can get him to listen to the manuscript academy and actually call me. Do you see what I'm saying about like how impressive her brain is? Like we have discussed all the things under the sun and she also sends this message to 50 cents so he can get in touch with her. And yeah, if you are listening, can you get in touch with Kari or her publicist? That would be fine. That'd be great. (laughs) So when we, he had a thing for a while where he was selling vodka and if you could, if you bought a bottle of vodka, he'd sign it. You could take a picture. And so obviously I went and I brought him a cake with lyrics from one of his songs about, he had a lyric about cake and I put it on the cake. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I also like, because I don't fear rejection. It like, sometimes I, I don't know. I try a lot of things that other people would be scared to try. So I was like, I want to come to your VIP section tonight in your club. And I know from your music, from such hits as in the club that you will be found in the club and that I should come give you a hug. Like you say it in your song. You, I demand access. And, and he said, yes, he didn't know what to do with me. He looked at his manager and they both approved it and put me on the list. Oh my, this is why oh my we became God. friends. Like I, you, I, I can't, my one thing is I don't want boring people. I don't want boring characters. I don't want to be around boring. It's just, Oh, I can't stand. And she's the opposite of boring. Okay. So, so let me just, let me just haw back. So when you're in high school, you were <laughs> hanging out by yourself, writing papers, <laughs> but now that you're an adult, you just chat with like really cool people like CC online and stock, but it works 50 cents. 50 cent. <laughs> Can we take a moment to acknowledge that I was just cited in the same sentence <laughs> in terms of like level of importance and level of coolness as 50 cent? I am just, this is going on my tombstone. <laughs> oh my God. We, we never, you just never know where these conversations are going to go. Like you never know. It's just... <laughs> 
Fun. I'm curious about what other things you've done because of your lack of fear of rejection. Oh, okay. This kind of can sound bad sometimes. I use it as a joke with my students and my coworkers. I'll have to say it a little bit less funny, I think, here because I don't want to get any flack in my academic circles. But twice I have rejected an academic rejection and <laughs> gotten my piece published through the person that rejected me. And that sounds bad, like I'm sidestepping the peer review process, but here now I, I'm going to explain it better. So basically there've been two times where through things that I felt like the publishing body themselves didn't really handle either professionally or thoroughly that I said, no, I, I think that we should keep talking about this. And I think I can make it what you're wanting and I can address the problem. So instead of just saying reject, tell me revise and resubmit and I'll go fix it. And to me, honestly, at this point in my life, when those two things worked out and the person was like, hey, okay, let's have a conversation. Let's shape this piece. And this is what Cece and I did with my proposal. To me, that is what peer review is intended to do at its best, is to create a community of people who are having a conversation and helping one another to build the best piece of scholarship they can that might go out into the world. The things I'm mentioning about zombies, for instance, and I say this in my acknowledgments to my books, like I stand in a community of people who have influenced my thinking. Those are years and years of reading and thinking and putting together other people's ideas. And it sounds funny. And I did get these publications because I was like, no, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take a hard pass on your rejection. And I'm going to say, let's come back to the table. Like it could sound, it didn't like me or something and wanted to make me sound bad that I don't go through the proper channels. But really to me in those instances, I was taking peer review back to what it always was intended to be, which is to shape the best scholarship possible through a community of knowledge rather than the snarky feedback you sometimes get in a peer review. And I continue to say no agent or editor or publishing company has ever been as mean to me as academic rejections are. So they can be really harsh. Mm -hmm. Perhaps this is a secret to all querying writers out there who are listening to this. If publishing is tough, you could try academia. And then after trying that and being rejected <laughs> by these really mean people, um, publishing will look really awesome and appealing. Mind to see agents talk about the kind of responses they get from people. Because another thing I always say, submit early and often. I don't know if anybody on the publishing side would like this advice, but <laughs> not too early, not too often. Not too yeah, early, I know. Not too often. I know. I think academics would say the same thing, but for me, like all feedback is great. And if I can get somebody in my field to look at what I've done and say, here's how it can be better. That's amazing. I do think that this is really true for you, Kari, because you were an expert <laughs> in the thing you were writing. Like if you were working on a novel, this approach probably wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. It's you're creating something totally new, whereas you are working on a nonfiction proposal about something that you have decades of experience researching. Like there's, you mm. had done the hard work. Like That's true. when someone sets out to write a novel, they typically haven't spent decades learning that world and the craft of writing. So there is that to take into consideration. And I would also add just in terms of we are discussing rejection and rejection is a huge part of life as an author, of life as an agent, of life as an editor, like publishing, right? Like it's twofold. So one is 
it's really hard to get rejected. I understand that also from a writer's perspective. If you look at rejection as something to aspire to, because it means you're trying, right? then you are holding power over rejection. You are being stronger than that rejection. And that is what Kari taught me. Whenever I would come back to her with this publisher passed or that publisher passed before we got a few people interested in her work, which was awesome, but she would just be stronger than that rejection. And I think that when you, if you see it as part of the road, you have to travel to get to your destination. Although it will hurt because I don't think that anyone can quite be Kari, it will be growing pains as opposed to defeating pains. And I think that's really important. And the second thing I would say is when interacting with agents, because we are sharing a very atypical story, but when interacting with agents, it's all about, because Kari is showing the side of her where she's a go-getter and she maybe doesn't take no for an answer. But I just want to say that it's done in a way that's so organic and so humble and just cool. Like she... She waited for an opening where I, after months and months, or perhaps even a year, I don't remember, offered something to take me up on it. And she did take me up on it, which I think everyone should. But I think that if you approach it as a a long game, which she did, and as part of the journey, then you will be so much stronger for it. And Mm -hmm. more importantly, your writing will be so much stronger because you grow. Like growing pains, what do growing pains mean? It means that you are now taller than you were before. And stronger than you were before. I think that's important to say is I don't, except from 50 Cent, because I'm like, you're like a bajillionaire or I don't know, maybe he's bankrupt sometimes. I don't really pay attention. (laughs) I just, I get lost in his eyes and his velvety (laughs) smooth voice. So I don't even care, but I didn't mean mind being demanding to him. He can handle it. But yes, like when I'm saying that I've rejected a rejection, I'm always so polite and professional. I'm never assuming that this is owed to me. I guess my motto would be less than I don't take no for an answer that it never hurts to ask if you're doing it, as Cece says, in a, in an appropriate way. It's true. It's true. And also with 50 Cent, I will say that this does not apply. I agree. You, he right. does owe you an answer. He does. <laughs> he says in the song, come give me a hug. And I got one, but then I really felt like he liked me in that moment for my mind. And now he's neglecting that and he's not really remembering this deep personal connection that we had in that moment. I think there's a whole Eminem like video about this. <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh. Stan. Yeah. A stan. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're Stan. I also really Eminem. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to oh interview gosh. him for my memoir. I don't know if he'll talk to oh me. My God. But, uh, uh, he- there was something, what was the first thing you mentioned, Cece? Because I wanted to respond to that. Oh, rejection. Yeah. When you were saying that I taught you that, it's funny because before you said that, I was like, this sounds, I love this advice. Yeah. If you just assume that it's part of the job and that it means you're working, which is how I look at it. There's this famous novel by George Eliot called Middlemarch. And in this book, there's a girl, Dorothea. She marries this man whose name is Casabon. Some people pronounce it Kasabin. And he spends his whole life, he's writing this book called The Key to All Mythologies. He wants to demonstrate that there's some overarching metaphor that applies to all classical myth. It's essentially a dissertation or an academic book. And he works and he works and he works and he works and he never finishes it. And then he dies. And then Dorothea, his wife, goes to look at this masterpiece that she's been so, she's felt so honored to help him in this and realizes that it's pretty mediocre. And 
I know that every Victorianist like me, we live to, well, I won't speak for other people. That is the thing that keeps me submitting and that makes me not scared of rejection because George Eliot is such a powerful writer. When I think of a life spent, and we academics can be very scared to send our work out. But when I think about the possibility of working on something for so long and nobody ever hearing about it, that it never makes it out into the world, or that I never found out that I needed to get better so that I could get better, like that to me is a way more scary thought than that somebody tells me no. Could we cycle back for a moment to communicating about disease because it's so important and it's something that we've seen how miscommunicating about COVID-19 has had very disastrous results in some areas. Can you talk about how people convinced other people to believe in something invisible? I think this is the journey the book takes you on. If you can't get enough of me through Simon & Schuster, you can then also go find my academic book, which absolutely covers the way people reacted to this idea that there was an invisible threat. But Quarantine Life, the book through Simon & Schuster that I worked on with Cece, it almost is taking a more pragmatic approach. If you're trying to convince somebody about something new and something they can't see, whether that's because it's physically invisible or because there's a chronological scalar complication. By that, I'm things like global warming and climate change, right? Like none of us individually can see that with our eyes every day. We have to trust in this larger data pattern that we're told exists. And so I think quarantine life is more pragmatic in saying per each chapter, here's the difficulty you're going to run into regarding this piece of it regarding the fact that people, it's not to scale. And we have quantitative scientific communication data that shows that scale matters, that our human imagination can only take so much. And so this is a problem you're going to run into. People don't like to be told what to do with their bodies, particularly not in America. So this is a problem you're going to... So I feel like it almost, the book itself is taking you on that journey of what you'll run into, what the problems will be, and that these are not new which I think maybe could help some people de-escalate this sense that they just won't listen, that we're living suddenly in a society where people don't want to hear this. I think that's true. I think we've gotten very polarized. But also these conversations have been had. And for me, that's very comforting that people have seen this before. They've been just as stressed out as us, just as angry at the naysayers as us. And life went on talking back about scale, that there's this scalar comfort in history for me, that we're not the only people that have been in this boat before. So curious, Cece, after working on this book, what are you looking for next? Ooh. Ooh. Okay. I will say, I know that's not what you're asking me, but I will say that Kari and I had a really cool brainstorming chat the other oh, day about yeah. her next book. So, so good. she just called me and she was like, what should I work on next? And I was like, let's talk about it. So we spent like <laughs> an hour on the phone, just throwing ideas back and forth. But yeah, like in general, I am definitely looking for a lot of psychology, science books, memoirs, I love nonfiction and I love nonfiction that explores anything that has a feminist angle, intersectional angles, issues of immigration are near and dear to my heart. Anything that explores misandry, 
Moi, les hommes, je le déteste. I hate men by Pauline Hermange. Um, I think when we were brainstorming, I did, because you were like, okay, what could you just talk about for hours? And I said, like, why men are awful. So <laughs> I feel like that almost made it into the list of possible next true. books. This is true. And it could be many things, right? Like, I just, these are the big themes that I am looking for. And I also, in terms of fiction, stories that cover moral ambiguity, dysfunctional families, people behaving badly. Give me stories where women are behaving badly and I will be a happy person. So there's a great book called Confident Women by Tori Teffler. Anything in that vein. I'm so hungry for more and I just am really looking forward to getting these queries from any by the way, you are listening to the podcast and you decided to query me because you're listening. Please do reference this conversation because it's always a nice touch. It's always nice to hear. Hmm. And Kari, we'd also love to give out three copies of your book. Is there a password people could send to us in the email and we'll send a copy to the first three when the book comes out? Yeah. I mentioned this in my introduction, what my favorite disease is. So I will (laughs) use that pathogen as the password. So it will be group A strep. (laughs) (laughs) This is the coolest thing ever. I'm telling you. (laughs) So so yes, the first three people to email us with group A strep in the subject line will get a copy of Kari's book. And then we're going to wash your hands. In the story she shares, men refuse to wash their hands, guys. So, oh, just oh my God. No, seriously, like group A strep is the key to feminism. Trust me, read the chapter. Oh my gosh. Where can we find you guys online? <laughs> my Twitter handle is at half sick shadows. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I have a website, mknixon.com. I'm more into the Twitter, though. Follow me. I'm on Instagram, C-C-C-E-C-E, Lyra, L-Y-R-A, agent. And then I'm on Twitter, Cecilia C. Lyra. Everyone pronounces it Lyra, but it's Lyra. I, it's honestly, it's my husband's name. I think it's my name because I took it, but I, I don't care how you pronounce it. <laughs> I don't, I don't leave this on the podcast because he gets really mad when I say that. I'm like, okay, uh, Lyra's pretty. He's like, it's Lyra. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys. This was terrific. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.